0: Welcome to MOSE 15, The Reunion. I'm Christopher S. Uh, my site was Lishinga, Alfindu Mundu in Nyasa, and I worked in education as a secondary science uh, volunteer teaching biology at Escola Paulo Samuel Cancomba.
1: And Christopher, if someone didn't remember you, how would you describe your Peace Corps self?
0: I thought I was a pretty big deal at 22 years old. So how could someone not remember me Um, to help everyone out? Those were my peak twink years. I was especially uh, tall, skinny, and white. Um, I, I was going through a hat phase and trying to make that work. Not sure it was very
1: successful. I don't remember you wearing hats at all. What kind of hats did you wear?
0: In, in training, at least, I was, uh, I was trying to rock this like quasi-fedora safari cat thing, which to be fair, I am, as I mentioned, extremely white, so it also served the purpose of trying to protect me. Uh, the Peace Corps was the first and only time in my life that I've ever gotten a tan, and that took two whole years, um, and it went away immediately. <laughs>
1: Okay, so we're jumping the gun, maybe, maybe a little bit, but you're from Texas. That's actually one thing. So people might remember you as being Chris Texas.
0: Yes, that's true. Um, because other Chris, who now I just know of, is Jameis Chris.
1: Where was he from? I don't
0: remember where other Chris was from.
1: Yeah, I think I think he's from Ohio. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. That's correct. Yes. Now he is from Jameis Stan. <laughs>
1: All right well- uh besides your family, what makes you happy?
0: I would count this as my family, but definitely my my dog brings me the most joy in the world um he's a a little three year old about to be three year old beagle named beauregard um and he's just the sweetest cutest little guy in the world we uh uh we were we just had our first snow in Baltimore for the year, which is his first snow ever and we made him wear a stupid little coat and stupid little beady, or, um, uh, uh, booties for his feet. And he hated them, but he loved snow and it was very precious.
1: Okay, so besides your dog, I, I would accept your dog as family. So besides your dog, what, what makes you happy?
0: My work, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk more about that, but I, I am an infectious disease physician now, and I, I work primarily in HIV, and I love what I do, um, and I still find it compelling and interesting and motivating every day.
1: Let's transition towards that. So what have you been up to the last 10 to 11 years?
0: Yeah, mostly a metric shit ton of education and training. Um, I came back from Mozambique to Texas. I was off cycle for applying to medical school. So I had about a year and a half um, in between. And I ran away to Austin to just get a place for myself. Um, It took a few months, but then I got a job at Apple working in um, Portuguese support, actually, Uh, mostly with with Brazil, which was very interesting, and then went to med school in San Antonio, Texas for four years, ran away from Texas just before it went full, full crazy, Um, and I've been in Baltimore, Maryland for the past six years. I did my residency training in internal medicine at the University of Maryland, and then I stuck around for a fellowship in infectious disease. And now I am a full-fledged board-certified infectious disease physician um, working here in Baltimore. What was your your residency in? Internal medicine. So that's just uh, general adult
1: medicine. And so you're primarily dealing with patients that have HIV AIDS? Yeah. So
0: I am... Primarily an outpatient HIV uh, primary care doctor. Um, And that is, I'm working at a a federally qualified health center here in Baltimore. So that's primarily with um, lower socioeconomic um, groups, a lot of uh, immigrant population. Uh, Here, you know, the the epidemic in Baltimore is still going strong, unfortunately. Um, So it's a lot of, young um, gay bisexual uh, black men in particular that I'm working with. Uh, And then I have about 20% of my time that I'm doing inpatient infectious disease consulting at um, the Shock Trauma Hospital at University of Maryland, which
1: I really enjoy as well as a a different flavor. So are these these people like very sick close to death, The, the inpatient? So, yeah, unfortunately,
0: um, Baltimore is a place in America where you can still find uh, very advanced AIDS, um, advanced HIV. Um, And that was part of what was actually compelling to me to do my training here is that I would get the full spectrum of training and get experience in those areas. And um, due to failures of our system and our society, um, there are still... Primarily young men who are uh, presenting with advanced disease, um, different opportunistic infections, and sometimes that does not go in a good direction. Um, you know, most recently we went through that with the the monkeypox or mpox flare that some people may have heard about Um which unfortunately hit the uh, gay and bisexual community very specifically and very hard. And in particular, among people living with HIV who were uncontrolled, who had uh, advanced disease, it could be really horrific. Um, And we had a few of those in our hospital.
1: So how does the outpatient population compare with what health volunteers maybe witnessed in Mozambique? Yeah, um, I
0: mean, it's just an extremely different um, uh, epidemic in the U.S. than it is in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, my population here uh, in Baltimore is, is probably 60-40, um, 60% younger gay men, um, 40% older folks who... Contracted HIV during kind of the peak of in well I would we're still we're still in an epidemic of a lot of injection drug use in Baltimore but there was a height of the wave about 15 years ago that coincided with a lot of HIV transmission through injection drug use. Um, luckily, that has largely subsided due to a lot of work in you know clean works and, um, an outreach to those communities. Um, but so I'm taking care of a lot of people who, um, contracted HIV through injection drug use as well. Those tend to be a little bit of an older population. And then what's often really rewarding for me is I've got a few old timers of people who were diagnosed in the late eighties, early nineties, and have managed to survive. Um, and are now doing great on much simplified medication regimens. In Mozambique, it is, I mean, overall, the country is significantly younger, but it's a much younger, more heterosexual epidemic, uh, much more even between men and women, actually, I think probably um, weighted toward women in in Mozambique, um, certainly younger women, Are represented earlier than, than men in that context. Um, So yeah, it's just a, it's a, and the overall uh, prevalence is, you can't compare. I mean, Mozambique is still, last time I checked the, the eighth highest prevalence rate of HIV in the world. It's a good 10 to 20%. Now, where are we at? Yeah, I want to say 10 to 20% of the overall population. Um, I don't remember the latest numbers um, are living with HIV. So there's no comparison there. Um, but here in Baltimore is probably where I'm seeing the closest comparison of the concentration of HIV in America.
1: Do you have challenges getting the patients to take their medication?
0: Yeah, so that's actually what I am most interested in and most passionate about in HIV medicine is we are entering uh, a really wonderful new era of options for treating HIV. Um, that the best comparison is that within the next. Um, five to 10 years, it's going to become like contraception and that there will be a menu of options available from daily oral pills to um, injectables, which we now have one available that can be taken every two months um, to we're going to be getting implants, longer term injectables, weekly oral, monthly oral, all of those are in the pipeline. So my job now, a large part of it and what I'm most interested in, is going to be matching the mode of administration of these medications and the the pros and cons for each with Individual patients and what their needs and values are, and finding the ways to overcome any barriers to to medication adherence by using those different modalities, um, and it's it's already um, making a difference in in some patients that just could never. Handle a daily oral medication, which if anyone has to do that, it's it's not fun. Um, And in particular, a daily oral medication that is so heavily linked to stigma and um, and a lot of self stigma and shame as well. Um, So that's that's been a major challenge. And I'm excited about having some more tools in the toolbox to address that. Uh, along with just making relationships with people and supporting and overcoming some of the other barriers in their life that are often more pressing to them than HIV. How about the side effects? We have come a very, very long way in HIV medicine, which is wonderful. The newest... um, First-line medications that we have are one-pill-once-a-day combination medications with extremely low side effect profiles, both in the the short-term and the long-term. Very well tolerated. And that's awesome. It makes a, a huge difference. There's still a lot of movement necessary for both updating people to kind of the the newest regimen and ensuring that there is access for those to everyone. Um, luckily, uh, in America, one thing, probably some of the two things that I think that we have done best as a country within the past few decades are, in America, uh, having guaranteed funding for HIV medications, at least in states that care about this, um, like luckily Maryland does, Texas made it a little bit more difficult, but there is federal funding available that no person living with HIV should not have access to their their medication and should not be able to afford it. Um, And then on the international front, um, I will give credit to George Bush, uh, George H.W. Bush, no, George W. Bush.
1: Second Bush. Second Bush. Second Bush, Bush, Bush the second.
0: Um, for PEPFAR, which is truly a something that we should all be very proud of as Americans. Uh, it has saved millions and millions and millions of lives. You should be calling your congress people now because there's a bullshit effort to uh, potentially not refund it, which would be catastrophic
1: i've I have one more question related to the HIV AIDS. Is there a vaccine in sight?
0: No, there's a lot of work and there's a lot of incredible basic science research that comes from that. We can thank um, HIV research for the COVID vaccines and for the ability to produce those so quickly and so effectively. However, HIV itself is... An incredibly complex virus. It's a virus that I hate and respect uh, a lot. And we have not yet had um, success in developing a vaccine. There was just a a trial, the most promising recent trial just had to stop for lack of efficacy. Um, We do, however, have a lot of things on the horizon, which in a lot of ways, we'll abrogate the need for a vaccine if we use them well and use them correctly. Um, most prominently is HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, uh, which we've had now for about 10 years as an oral PrEP pill, um, typically taken daily, um, which has a extremely high efficacy in preventing HIV transmission if it's
1: um, used as it's as it's intended. Okay. Can you yeah can 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 you walk us through that? Because I I think I understand, it, but I'm not completely sure. So you take this before you have risky sex with someone, or it doesn't have it have to be risky, but like you 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 take this before having sex or before doing drugs or something.
0: What, what we would say would be any exposure, any condomless sex. Um, so prep as a pill, there are two brand name options that have been on the market for a while now, both for the same company, um, Truvada and now discovi and don't get me started on some of the big pharma bullshit around that. Um, but those in America at least are approved as a, a daily oral pill um, that prevents HIV transmission. So basically the there are two, Um, anti-HIV medications within the pill that we use in regular treatment and they build up enough of a barrier in um, tissues where HIV can be transmitted to prevent that from happening um, with greater than 95% efficacy if they are taken every day. There's some alternative um, strategies for how people can take those. There's PrEP on demand. That's a little bit more popular in Europe. I'm not a big fan of that just because I don't think people are good at taking a daily medication, much less a daily or medication um, preemptively based on uh, assessments of exposure or risk. Um But again, different conversation. And now we have available just in the past year, a injectable medication to prevent HIV, which can be given every two months and is even more effective than the oral HIV prep um, because of the you're not having to worry about the adherence side of things.
1: So this would be either someone finds out that they have HIV and so they start taking this so they don't spread it. Or maybe you start a relationship with someone with HIV and you take it so that your partner doesn't spread it to you. Is there, are, are that, or is this even just like maybe even any gay person in general, just start taking it because you have, a, you're at a higher risk.
0: So slight distinction there. This is not for people living with HIV, people living with HIV. Yeah. We know that treatment is prevention and undetectable is equals untransmittable. Um, that's kind of the slogan within HIV world. So anyone living with HIV who is on treatment, whose HIV viral load is suppressed. Um, we use un, undetectable because it's, it makes a better slogan, but it's not actually undetectable. Um, suppressed HIV viral load, we have oodles and oodles and oodles of evidence at this point um, that you cannot sexually transmit HIV in that case. Um, And that's a big message that we're getting out around the country and around the world um, and encouraging people to get on and and stay on HIV medication in order to um, eliminate that risk of sexual transmission. So that's part of the, the calculus from the prep standpoint, it's anyone at, at, risk of HIV, um, which when it first came out, there were a bit more restricted guidelines on, on who would qualify. Um, So that was men who have sex with men who had multiple partners within the, uh, the past few months, that's injection drug users. That's, uh, but now that has uh, been opened up to basically anyone who wants PrEP should be on PrEP anyone who estimates their own um, risk as being elevated uh, and be that uh, heterosexual or, or gay bisexual people um, who have condomless sex, multiple partners, don't know the HIV status of their partner, having this extra layer of protection is a great idea. Um, and there have been some efforts, probably not, not nearly as much as we should in um, the real areas of the epidemic in the world and in sub-Saharan Africa in particular to make PrEP more available. There are significant dis- or different challenges there just based on uh, the different society and social stigma around HIV medication is much more known um, and stigmatized in sub-Saharan Africa. And so it's, It can be more difficult for a young woman, say, to have a bottle of Truvada at home, because if anyone sees that, they are going to assume that she has HIV, not that she is trying to prevent herself from having HIV. Um, So that's, again, where some of the different modalities are coming into play and are going to be very interesting of finding options of, hey, if we get to a I mean, I think the holy grail right now is an every six month injection, um, which would be spectacular and is on the horizon. And if we get to that, maybe that's something that's a little bit more acceptable that, you know, you can go to clinic secretly, get your injection. Nobody at home has to know. And you're protected for, for six months, um, which is which would be wonderful and would make a, an even greater impact in the trajectory of HIV worldwide.
1: Okay, well, thanks for all that information. I'm sure I'm not the only one that is living in the U.S. that is not very informed on what's going on with HIV AIDS. All good. This
0: is, uh, I mean, this is my jam. This is what I'm passionate about. So happy to talk about it anytime.
1: How was your transition back to the U.S.? So you, you got a job at Apple, but how was that coming back to U.S. culture?
0: it was rough actually the first the first few months so i ha- i mean the the immediate return it's just a rush it's similar to whenever you first go to to mozambique there's just so much that you're kind of relearning i talked to some people about it at the time i think what was most discombobulating was you had that or i had that feeling of otherness and learning and reacclimating but underneath it I was like well I'm not supposed to feel like this, this is home Um, this should all be familiar and normal Uh, but it wasn't and uh, and then so like I said I, I came back without an immediate or near term plan so I was fumbling for about three or four months from what I remember before I got the, the job and I kind of just moved myself to Austin because I didn't want to be staying. It was pre uh, uh, pandemic times, So staying at your parents' house wasn't, wasn't socially acceptable. Um, and I have never been a, I'm generally an optimist. I've never been a clinically depressed person at all but that's probably the closest that I came to it. I just felt very unanchored in those first few months and very I'd come from a place in a time where I felt such purpose and clarity in what I was doing and who I was. And so I have been losing that and, and struggling to kind of rebuild it um, uh, was tough for the first few months. Um, but luckily I, I think having that, that job as an in-between, which I genuinely enjoyed, it was, it was fun. It was challenging. I got to use my Portuguese, uh, weak as it is. And, um, and then, you know, transitioned on to, to the path in medicine. Uh, but it was, it was, uh, it was not the most fun transition period.
1: What's most surprising about you now, considering who you were in Mozambique, can be surprising to you or us mm, i don't know. I mean,
0: I don't think that there's anything terribly surprising. I don't think that my my trajectory post Mozambique would be horribly surprising to anyone. I think probably what would be more surprising, what is more surprising now is people who, who know me and then learning that I was in the peace Corps. I think that that's a bit more surprising to them. I am, I'm a pretty comfortable, uh, basic white bitch. Uh, I, I, I enjoy my creature comforts here. I, uh, I'm not super outdoorsy. I, uh, yeah, so I, I don't know that I am the person that people would have pegged as a Peace Corps volunteer, um, and I enjoy that. I enjoy that that can be a little bit of a surprise to folks, uh, and that I
1: have that in my backpack pocket or as part of my story. That's a good answer. How did Mozambique prepare you for the lockdown and pandemic?
0: Um, my pandemic was very different than most people's, I think.
1: Were you a resident?
0: Yeah. So I was never in a lockdown. I went to work every day. I was in the hospital every day of the pandemic. Um, And so I had a a different experience. Um, I think that the way that the Peace Corps and Mozambique prepared me for that, which I think a lot of us can can attest is probably one of the greatest gifts coming out of the the Peace Corps experience is, is resilience. Um, And that, you know, goes generally across kind of all aspects of my life. Um, But that experience I think has, has the Peace Corps experience made me significantly more resilient to the challenges of the pandemic and um, to what, we were going through within healthcare and what I was seeing, what the entire country was going through. Um, I will say the other thing is that I was um, team Fauci before everyone else because Fauci became my hero um, or one of my, my biggest heroes while I was in the peace corps. And I was at that time doing um, a lot of reading on HIV and the history and the 80s and Fauci comes up a lot in that story. So um so I was I was well aware of the players involved and I think it was I mean I could talk a lot about the, the pandemic experience. I I came into medicine and I always knew throughout that I was my goal was to be part of the the last group of physicians uh, ending the prior pandemic, uh, ending HIV. And I wasn't entirely surprised to be having a, a new pandemic during my medical career. I didn't necessarily expect it so early in my my medical career and kind of setting the stage. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it was a I think and a very important part of my, my training and, um, and something that will
1: stick with me in like downtown Baltimore area.
0: Yep. So university of Maryland is downtown Baltimore. We cover the West side of Baltimore. Um, Johns Hopkins covers the East side of Baltimore. Baltimore never got the absolute brunt of, of COVID um, which is good. We were never in New York, um, but we did have some pretty significant waves and, Similar to everyone else earlier on, we had very limited tools. We had very limited knowledge. Um, It was not great. It was, and it's something that I don't think, I think people outside of medicine have maybe been able to move past that a little bit faster and easier than those who maybe weren't as directly affected by family or friends. Um, But, you know, I I distinctly remember I was March, April, May 2020. Every day, people dying and being the not not infrequently the the person holding, you know, FaceTime for dad or grandpa while he while family said goodbye because he was intubated and unresponsive. Um, And similarly, and I think probably even more frustrating to me was later waves when we had tools, we had the vaccines that could save people. And there were, was by that time, a movement against them. And in particular, having, you know, Third trimester, young pregnant women who were other, otherwise healthy and dying because they they got COVID. Um, so there was there's a lot that probably remains to be unpacked from the experience. Um, but I I did also I think it was very important to my my learning and training as a physician as an infectious disease physician in particular. Um, but becoming much more comfortable connecting back to Mozambique, actually, um, in riding the wave of the unknown um, and being able to, you know, keep, oh God, I'm mixing metaphors so badly, keeping my head above water in that. And and um, even in the face of a lot of, Uh, uncertainty, making decisions and moving forward and doing our best. And I think that that's something that isn't necessarily the public face of medicine. It's not necessarily what we always want to project. Um, but there's plenty of times where we don't for sure know what we're doing. Um, it's one of the areas of science that's least settled that's least certain. Um, but we are able to take the tools and the science that we do have and match that with humanism and people skills and try to muddle through um and that's something I think that I definitely took from the Peace Corps experience as well that has held me in good stead
1: as a as a physician okay well i well, I have a question for you, particularly about the medical training so Helen's residency program, they haven't trained them, counseled them at all about talking to people. Occasionally they they do have patients that are like ter- terminally ill where they just recommend to go to hospice. But I remember when I was talking to her about it, it wasn't anything that anyone prepped her for, like gave her like some few cues or like how to maybe handle the situation. She was literally just like tossed in the deep end with a patient she she could speak for herself if, if she wants to, but I was really surprised that this isn't a very direct aspect that you are trained and prepared for. How was that? Was your experience similar? Yeah.
0: I mean, there's a lot of throwing in the deep end in, in medical training. Um, but yes, to an extent, I will say that I um, am slightly lucky in that the my medical school in San Antonio actually had a very strong palliative care medicine program. So we did get a, a little bit of more formalized training around it, which was more of just kind of you know, talk sessions and, and getting to shadow people who were or getting to, to, to work with people who were more of the experts in that, who had developed that skill over time. Um, but the other part of that is that I think it really benefits doctors to have some life experience before getting on the path of training. Um, I think it helped me a lot to have done the Peace Corps and then have been, you know, working at Apple and just learned how to talk to people. Um, and I do think that that's a a skill that isn't, Traditionally as emphasized in medicine, there, there are very much so still vestiges of patriarchal um, uh, you know, I'm the expert, you're the patient dynamics in medicine. I think that that has changed and improved significantly. I will give points to the HIV AIDS activists in the eighties who I think led the way in changing that and and building a much more balanced uh, medical environment between patient autonomy, patient rights and, and, and physicians or, or the medical system writ large. Um, but it's still not perfect and there's still not enough focus or training on that art of medicine side of things um, as I personally think that there should be. Um, it's tough though, because there's just a lot to get through.
1: Yeah. And like an anesthesiologist or, or a radiologist probably doesn't need it as much.
0: Probably not, but I do think that every physician, every person in healthcare needs a grounding in the humanism of what we do and the, and how that experience is for people who are dealing with illness. Um, I think that having that in your, in your, your mindset, in your, um, as part of your training and having a a clear focus and grounding in what we're doing, is not just, high science it's not just fancy tools and techniques it's people's lives um, is extremely important and makes us better doctors and i think some training does that better than others
1: i think the the mcat in medical school in general weeds out a lot of people that would make very good doctors because they're not interested in in all maybe the science or in general they can't take the time needed to get the proper test scores.
0: I could certainly go on for more than one podcast about all of the failures and inefficiencies of the the medical training system in the United States. Although I will say there's, there's a quote about democracy. Oh God, I'm such a uh, jackass. I'm quoting Winston Churchill. It's like, um, democracy is the worst possible system except for like all the other systems that we've tried paraphrasing terribly. Um, And I feel somewhat similarly about medical training. There's, it's not a good system, but I don't know that I have a perfect alternative. Um, And I think that we are still evolving and figuring it out and hopefully getting better. Uh, And at the end of the day, I think, my medical training did leave me prepared for what I do um, and and certainly prepared to know what I don't know and to know how to navigate that, that space, like I said.
1: Let's try and transition away from medicine again. <laughs> but if we go yeah. back, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> you mentioned a we earlier. It, w- it was a little ambiguous if the we was just you and the dog or if there's anyone else involved in the we. So is there anyone else in that we?
0: Yeah. Not ambiguous. We, um, I married my husband Thomas, uh, three years ago now, actually I have to remember, um, anniversary is coming up. Um, so we had first a, uh, pandemic courthouse wedding. And then a year later, uh, a family wedding and got to invite, um, a few Peace Corps friends, which was very lovely, uh, Kyla and Laura from Mo16, who was uh, John and, and my site mate in Lishinga, got to join, which was very nice.
1: Okay, I got a question about John. Did you or when did you suspect that John was gay? <laughs> oh, John, 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 John. Um,
0: okay, I mean, I... I know John loves me, so he won't he won't get mad about me saying anything. Um, I definitely got vibes from John early on in training. Uh, he he pinged my radar, um, but then we lived together for two years, and we were we were brothers, and and it didn't come up, and I set it aside. I I didn't. I didn't question that. Um, and then pretty soon after we got back, I think it was a month or two after we got back, I believe I was one of, if not the first people that he he called and came out to, um, which is really meaningful to me. And that was one for, I'm glad that he um, trusted me enough with that. I, I do wish that he had been able to trust me with it in the Peace Corps. I think it would have, you know, deepened our relationship even more. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm so happy for him. I've gotten to, my husband and I got to visit Ken and John in Cape May before they moved out to Alaska, which was wonderful. I'm terrible about long distance communication and keeping up, which is something I'm, I'm not proud of. Um, Tom or John and I need to reconnect especially cuz they're they're in Pittsburgh now which we could definitely meet in the middle. So that was it? No, it was uh during P score uh nothing really.
1: How many first dates did it take you to find your husband? Um I mean are we talking gay first dates or, uh, or You know, yeah yeah yeah. Dates? What's a first date, right? What's a first date? Uh Uh, Open to interpretation, however you would interpret that question. Go ahead.
0: Stages are a little bit different um,
1: between
0: between us. Um, I kissed and did a lot of other things with a lot of frogs before uh, before I met my husband. Um, I don't I don't think we uh, we don't have fingers or toes enough to, to count. So. Uh, We'll just say that uh, luckily the timing worked out great. Whenever I I moved to Baltimore, I was very early on in my residency. Um, We met on a location-based app that shall go unnamed. Uh, We hit it off. We went on a few real dates and I... Convinced him to fall in love with me before he knew what he was getting into with uh, dating and eventually marrying someone in the, the midst of their their medical training, which for anyone else who has been in that position, it is it is not fun. It is not a, a rewarding thing. Um, so I am very grateful that he stuck it out and that he was gull- gullible enough to fall for me.
1: It all depends on how much time you want to spend with your spouse. You know, if you don't, if you like a lot of distance from your spouse, it's great.
0: That's true. That's true. It definitely (laughs) affords a lot of distance.
1: (laughs) All right. And then what's the future looking like for children?
0: We got, we have a five-year moratorium on discussions, uh, post, uh, fellowship training. So five years to be, just out in the world um, being dinks, right? Dual income, no kids, uh, living our lives uh, before we have a more serious conversation about it. I don't know that we feel super strongly right now. Um, we are the uncles to, at this point, six incredible nieces, uh, which is wonderful and probably the better deal that I I get to just have fun with my nieces and I get to spoil them and shower them with things and then uh, hand them back.
1: Being an uncle is so much more enjoyable than being a father for sure.
0: Not in a rush. We are good with with the dog at the moment and for for the foreseeable future.
1: Have you picked up any new hobbies?
0: Uh, so I've just with getting out and hobbies are not a thing during residency or fellowship. Um, any people who do otherwise and manage to hold on to some semblance of life, I, I, do not like do not respect um but post training uh things have opened up a little bit which is nice i'm i'm reading for pleasure again at least a little bit which is lovely um we my husband and i actually just this past year we started doing pottery because again i am a basic white bitch um and we started doing a, uh, like a throwing pottery class um, in town that's just super rewarding to turn your brain off and just use your hands for an hour or two. Um, so I really I like that. I'm terrible at it. My goal is to be able to make two mugs that are at least relatively of a set. Um, and I have not managed that yet that eventually.
1: Pre-Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. Why did you join the Peace Corps?
0: I think um, like most of us who are being honest with ourselves as, as Peace Corps volunteers, was very selfish reasons. I was in my third year of undergrad at UT Austin. There was a, a campus recruiter there who brought it up. And so put the bug in my, my ear. Um, I was very much so on the path toward, you know, pre-med medicine and happy about that path. I've, I've never really wanted to change that at all. Um, but I was at that point getting antsy to step off the train at least for a little while and go out and see the world and challenge myself and, and do something with, Already a lot of education that I'd had. And so, yeah, that motivated me to to
1: go to the Peace Corps. Do you know how you ended up in Mozambique?
0: I've I've heard this from uh, some of the other secondary science uh, volunteers on here. It was pretty obvious from the start because when we were applying, it was before you had significant choice, which I probably have feelings about the change in that. Um, but I was, you know, a biology major, I was going to be a secondary science volunteer, and then I had some Spanish background from, you know high school and college Spanish. So that pretty much immediately narrowed it down to basically Mozambique if you looked at the the listings or availabilities of the Peace Corps at that time. Um, so I think even before, they formally told me where I was going, it was pretty obvious that it was gonna be Mozambique. And I was really happy about that. I was excited about it.
1: What was your biggest fear about going to Peace Corps in Mozambique?
0: I was pretty young and dumb and fearless at the time, um, which I think we lose as we, we have more stakes in the world. Um, and as we learn more, uh, and part of me misses that, but I'm, I'm fine having a healthy level of, of fear and, and appreciation these days of what I have. Um, but yeah, going into the Peace score, I don't remember any fears. I was, I was very, um, ready to, to just roll out into the world and, Prove myself
1: and what do you remember about training in Namasha? So
0: what I think sticks out to me and what comes back most about Namasha is I was probably the time in my life when I was most sensual in the in the sense of I felt like everything was turned up to a 10 in terms of all of my senses and all of my experiencing of the world. Um, I mean, everything just from, you know, the first bucket bath outdoors, at my, my family's place, the horrible latrine pits of doom, the like good and bad senses, like, engaging with the, the world and the natural world outside of four walls. I hadn't had that experience before and I, I certainly have settled back into a life where I don't have it now. Um, so I think that that's probably the thing that, that I think stands out to me the most in terms of just so much input at once and in such a compressed period and so much learning, both structured and unstructured. And I felt like I was at a time in my life where I was open to that. I was open to the world and learning and I didn't have the fear and I didn't have the, the baggage good and bad of, you know, a life. Um, So I was able to embrace all of that.
1: Do you have a favorite input
0: that, that you remember? Um, I mean, I have always been a foodie. And well, actually, I don't know if I would say I've always been a foodie. But Mozambique really opened that up for me. I love, my, my, was a great cook. And I loved just trying so many new things, um, so many different things that I, I would not have challenged myself to, to do before. And so a lot of the, I think probably food is one of the, the strongest connections to Mozambique. Um, I mean, I still have dreams about a good mayo frangu and piri piri and our impregata lurdish uh, blessings on her name, wherever she is now. Made just a spectacular carrillo de frango that I have never been able to replicate, and I never will. Um, yeah. So, food, I think, is is probably a a good core memory from Mozambique as well.
1: Okay. So, yeah. So that that's perfect. So, your your Mozambique service. So, in Niasa, what three words would you use to describe your experience? Ooh. Ooh, three words.
0: It's tough. Um, Expansive, which we already talked about kind of how that played in. Um, Humbling, certainly. I think that that was the start of a journey through the Peace Corps of having a true appreciation for how incredibly, incredibly privileged I am and I have been in my life um, and how that's not a given or something that I should ever take for granted.
1: I don't have a third word. I don't know, I'm struggling. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine, that's fine. Two good. Those are two uh, good words. What do you miss most about Mozambique?
0: I miss most that when I was in Mozambique was the time in my life that I felt the most present, the most just in the moment and not uh, not distracted by what's coming down the pipeline, not distracted by the next thing, the next deadline or goal or step in a path, I've been, you know, medicine is a very long path of very many, many steps. So that's what I've been doing for the past nine years. Um, And even now making to the end of it, there's, there's more steps to go. It just never stops. Um, Whereas in the Peace Corps, uh, I felt just there in a, like in a day, I just felt I was just living in the day and I I could take a walk to the, the market and just enjoy the walk and really be paying attention to the world around me and the people around me and not be rushing to something or from something, not be burdened with people to take care of, people that, were. that's another part of it. I mean, I love my... My family now, but I didn't have the responsibilities either. I didn't have the and so I think that there's there was a sense of freedom and and presence that I had, was pretty singular to to Mozambique and to the Peace Corps um, and it's something that i'll I'll hold on to. I don't necessarily need or desperately want to go back to that. I'm not seeking that again um, because I think there's trade-offs there, but I'm very glad that I had that moment in my life and I got to, to embrace it for a few years.
1: What do you miss least about Mozambique?
0: Everyone said shoppas. I'm never getting in a shop again. Um, they're just death traps and the worst. And I'm too tall for that. And I've, gained, I've gained more weight than I was in the Peace Corps. So it just would not work now. Um, but the other part of it, and this is just fun Peace Corps anecdote, is um, I'm very happy not to have so many bugs in my life anymore. And when John and I first um, got dropped off in Lishinga, which was literally the end of the line it was the the norte forte trail after um Mm -hmm. after training where they stuffed four of us into one of the trucks and dropped us off bit by bit along the way um so john and i were the last they we get to lishinga we meet our vice principal at the school he says oh yeah you're you guys are going to be in the house right next door which was Formerly, like the colonial uh, principal's house, or the, the leader of the the school, that had now most recently been used by uh, another teacher who was staying there. Like we're and our principal was like, "Oh yeah, we're going to kick him out right now. He's he should have been gone already." So they walk over, and we have to stand there while they kick this guy out. And then we move into the house. And that first night, it was it was just a disaster. It was such a Hit. Um, and John and I managed to clean out one bedroom. And we went to luckily, there was an actual like hardware store in Lishinga, and We bought duct tape and like 10 bottles of the Mozambican version of RAID. And we duct taped ourselves into the one bedroom that we had swept out. And we bombed the rest of the house. And then the next morning we come out and it was a roach apocalypse. There were literally thousands of roaches just covering the floor and we swept them all out and we did it again for at least five days. And every single day, it was just horrifying. Finally, after about a week of this, the roach numbers went down and our house was livable, but uh, that's a that's a core memory that I am very glad I have never had to do again in my life.
1: Is it ironic that you're an infectious disease doctor and you are infecting all these poor cockroaches? No, without... no, uh, no, 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 no. I am uh, the,
0: the nice thing about being an infectious disease doctor is that for the most part, my enemy in medicine, I can actually kill with, with no remorse and no, no ill feeling. I, uh, I respect viruses, I respect bacteria, I respect the vectors of illness, um, but I, I have no sympathy for them whatsoever. And I am more than happy to be destroying them uh, with RAID or antibiotics or whatever tools I have available.
1: What was your favorite Portuguese or local word? Ooh,
0: I, I mean Meningi Nice is always a winner. Uh I do love Estamos Juntosh. I think the the sentiment of it I have always really enjoyed. I did not learn um much local language at all, and I've I've lost it at this point because we were the provincial capital and, you know, the, the like premier secondary school in Lishinga or in Nyasa, which isn't saying terribly much, but everyone spoke Portuguese. Um, and the expectation, the, not even expectation, the I'm pretty certain the still law and rule at that time for uh, students was that they would speak Portuguese. Um, so I didn't really have much reason to be learning local language and and like lishinga was a where a couple of different local dialects came together so there wasn't a prominent one in town anyway so yeah uh mostly just the the fun portuguese words
1: if, uh, if there's anything you haven't mentioned yet what are a few things you did a lot in mozambique that you never or rarely do now
0: reading for pleasure was a big one, um, which I miss terribly. I, I mean, I devoured my Kindle and the Peace Corps, um, and I just have not had the time or the bandwidth for that in a very long time, uh, which I miss a lot and I would like to get back to. Uh, I think similarly... The the walking in town part is really nice as well. I mean, I did move away from Texas to be in a much more urban residential place um, and Baltimore offers some of that, but it's still not a super walkable city. And I, I just really loved that. I loved being able to go to the market for our daily meal and figuring out what we were doing and having to have the, the brief interactions with people, running into students on the road. We live a much more um, Little boxes life here in America. Um, and so being part of a community, I guess, is, would, would be maybe the better answer there. Um, even though I was separate from it, I did feel like a part of the community in Lishinga.
1: And that was nice. What was your malaria and medication adherence plan while you were in Mozambique?
0: I was a very good boy. And I, I took my mefloquine every week. Um, I'm pretty sure the entire time I very rarely missed if ever. Um, And I had a fine experience with it. I, I did early on in Namasha have some, larium dreams uh, but they were mostly just real vivid sex dreams so I didn't mind that much uh, and then they went away uh, after the first few weeks so I did not have a, a bad experience I will say as an infectious disease physician um methylquin is not my my prophylactic choice I do not uh, tend to prescribe that for people but I in the American context we obviously have plenty of other options, um, and less of an issue around supply or cost.
1: What is the worst thing you did in Mozambique or the most trouble you could have gotten into? And you can define those terms however you would, however you'd like. Again,
0: I was a, a pretty good law abiding Peace Corps volunteer. And in part, that's because there wasn't temptation in Lishinga. I mean, we couldn't, we couldn't be going out of sight to go do anything, really. It was a six-hour trip to Kuamba in the dry season, a 12-hour torture fest in the wet season. So we rarely left sight. Um, the most trouble I got are the...
1: We did have training sessions in Maputo with about 100 volunteers... That's true. That's true. Um, and I took advantage
0: of, of those some. Um, um, but so, I guess, more real story and, and kind of a downer. The, the most dangerous situation that I was in in Mozambique um, was like between year one and year two, um, took a big trip for school vacation and I made it all the way down to Villancoulouche to stay with Drew. And then I was having to start the journey back and kind of a deadline of getting back, had to catch the, the big mashimbombo bombo on the EN1 to get back to the North. And I had called and set up a, a taxi to pick me up from Drew's place at the, the Institute um, and to take me to, out from villain to the EN1 to the bus stop. Supposed to pick me up at like 8 p.m. The guy shows me shows up at 10:30, is drunk off his ass. Um, clearly a really dangerous situation. But the bus was supposed to be there at 11 p.m. and I was outside of my approved vacation week uh, time already at that point, so. I got in the car and I had just a really terrifying ride down the, the Villain Coolouche Road to the EN1, where, you know, he's drinking while we're driving, he's speeding, there's no lights whatsoever. So, at least twice he's having to swerve around cars that are stopped on the road. Um, and then I luckily did make it to the EN1 and um the bus of course didn't actually show up till after 1am so i was just sitting on the en1 by myself with like one really sketchy bar there and then so this is all just like what am i doing this is really stupid thinking i'm going to be staying out all night by myself Um, And then what was really terrible, um, and this is not about me in any way, but that was the night, I believe, of the accident. Um, And I had just been at training uh, for the new group a couple weeks before. And I connected really immediately with Alden and Lena, um, really hit it off with them. I'd still been messaging. I just texted back and forth with Lena like the night before. Um, I didn't learn about the accident until a couple of days later. But I think that that um, really was kind of the end of some of the fearlessness. Um, And I think a big, a big wake up call for me at 22 23 of you know how fragile this is um and how much i should be appreciative and and there's been other experiences in my life where it's it's that very kind of clear fork in the road where by you know blind luck or some other factor that my life went one way when it very clearly could have gone a different direction. Um, And so that's stuck with me.
1: What do you think is the most important thing you learned in the Peace Corps, either about yourself or about the world?
0: I think every Peace Corps volunteer is being honest with themselves. would say that they learn so much more about themselves and they, they gain so much themselves more so than what we give. Um, I hope that I, I gave back and that I did have some lasting contribution, but I definitely think that I, I gained both a, a very large sense of, of resilience and self empowerment. Um, and then, B, uh, the my, my time in the Peace Corps 100% solidified my path within um, within HIV medicine and, and kind of the entire direction of where my life has gone since then it was it was an interest and something that I was you know playing around with before the Peace Corps um, but I think that both, living in a country that was, was so impacted by the HIV epidemic, um, being close friends with the Medicine Sans Frontières mission in La and then my own time to read and reflect and learn. Um, by the time I came back or by the time I finished Peace Corps, I knew I was going to be uh, an HIV doctor
1: so i've I, I've questioned people on this a few times, but i'm I'm a little bit skeptical that that you that you definitely received more than than you gave so my question for you is how do you know
0: um well i mean i su- i suppose I can't know the reverberations of my impact. I think there are a few i have been very bad about well, I don't necessarily want to judge myself that much. I regret that I have not maintained better or really any relationships with Mozambicans at this point. Um, but I do know I I did have some of my students in the few years after the Peace Corps that I was I was still following along with, and I do know of some that uh, went on to university and, and even became doctors in Mozambique. And knowing the level of representation that there is um, within the, the Mozambique healthcare system, that's that's a pretty significant impact in itself. And I I hope that I did give some additional oomph or appreciation. To some of my students, and and open some pathways and some doors for them, and I think that that would be my biggest lasting impact. I don't really fool myself into thinking that it was more than um, was was you know changing of the country or anything like that. Um, but I also I do believe very strongly still in the mission of the Peace Corps. And I do believe that it is one of, if not the best, um, public relations efforts of the United States, and one of our best ways to actually build and maintain positive relationships with the world. Um, And I'm proud of that. I think that that's that's something that we should all be proud of, um, and I think that's one of the best faces of the U.S. Um, that we put forward. So, I've I've held on to that at least in terms of of what I contributed.
1: Would you do Peace Corps again?
0: I guess two ways of answering that question. Knowing what I know now,
1: no, no, no. Sorry, I, sorry. In it, the in going forward, in future, in your life, no. yes, no
0: it just wouldn't make sense now i mean my my training and what i could contribute it wouldn't make sense at this point
1: country director uh probably
0: not that either there there are plenty of other ways that i could that i engage. And, and it's it's something that i i still think about often it kind of it's getting probably a little bit more and more out of the picture as i'm more anchored in life here. And as I'm building more of a, a role in fighting the domestic epidemic, but I do still think that there's a lot that would be interesting to me about doing um, international health work. And and there are some opportunities in Mozambique that I think that I could um, fit into. So who knows, maybe down the line in my career, I uh, that might still be on the on the docket, um, have to convince the husband to go <laughs> live in Mozambique. Um, but it, it is something that that's very interesting and compelling to me. Um, but no, I don't I don't think the Peace Corps model would make sense for me at all at this point. You
1: you you kinda hinted at this, but if you could change one Peace Corps rule, what what would you change?
0: Ooh. I could change one
1: rule. Would you go back and, and people can't apply to specific programs? Oh, I, so yeah,
0: I think I'm not a, I'm, I don't think I'm a fan of that. I don't know. I guess I don't have a great feel for how it's worked out because they were just starting to make that change while we were in the Peace Corps. But I think such an important part of anyone's success in the experience was the openness to the unknown and was the, the willingness to take things as they came and to adapt and to to make the best of the situation. I think that's a pretty core Peace Corps volunteer skill set. So I kind of feel like giving this more uh, this opportunity for selection from the outset gives a false impression and maybe sets volunteers up for a big bad surprise when they get in country or when they get to site. And everything is completely different than what you were told or promised. And you just have to go with it. Um, I mean, I was told in this, I was just listening to Charlie's uh, talk last night. He was told that he was going to be doing teaching one thing ended up being a completely different thing when you got to site and worked out. I had a similar experience. I came in, I was supposed to be doing um, chemistry and I got to site and like, we don't have a secondary or, or 12th grade biology teacher. And I was like, yes, please. That's what I love. That's what I'd much rather do. Um, so I did that for two years and, and just the ability to turn on a dime and, and, and adapt is so core and fundamental that, I think that it should be part of the the entry process as well, I guess. But I don't know. Maybe people are actually happier with the way it works now.
1: I I'm a little skeptical for the spec the aspect of the countries that people obviously wouldn't want to go to. So I, I think there could be a negative impact on those countries that aren't next to a water or. Um, mountains or you know things like that or have severe weather like up north maybe countries in didn't stand
0: no i i agree i'm interested in in how that has affected their their ability to fill some of those slots as well i'm just glad that the peace corps is back up and running um i was very sad when the pandemic happened in it and it shut everything down i was really sad for the volunteers who who had that experience interrupted um so i'm I don't follow Peace Corps news nearly as closely now as I I used to. But uh, last I heard, and I'm glad to hear that in general, we are back up and running and and things are, are a bit back to normalcy.
1: If it's a government agency and Americans are doing it as a service to their country, I think the country should decide where the best volunteers should go. Not necessarily the best volunteers get to pick, like, you know, it's kind of like a medical school, like the best medical applicants get to pick their medical school. And that's fine. This is, you know, an individual making a decision for themselves. But if you're serving your country, I I think your country should should place you wherever they think you you would be best, even if it's not obvious where that would be.
0: Yeah, I I think I one hundred percent agree with you, and I and I am actually very much so on board with the model of a service requirement in America, and there being a mix of things that that qualify for that between Peace Corps, Americorps, military service, different different opportunities. But I think I think service, and I think following th- or Following through on a uh, mission like that—that that is beyond yourself—that is—that is serving a community in some way—is extremely important. Um, and I I would love to see that become a much more standard part of of our American story. It is—it's definitely made me more patriotic. I the Peace Corps has. Um,
1: And you're someone that grew up in Texas, you know, so that's, that's saying something.
0: Oh God. I mean, I could, I could certainly rail for quite a long time about all of the very many failures and mistakes and and issues that we have in America. Um, But I, what I, I think part of what we take away from the Peace Corps experience is having to solidify much more of an identity as an American by being an American abroad. And I, I think the thing that I took away most is our capacity for, for change and for evolving and for becoming better. And I do think that that was something that I I valued in myself and in like the American ethos and and being, and I was part of, you know, and the, the impression that I got in Mozambique was that there was the way that things were supposed to be done. And that was everything from doing the laundry to teaching, certainly, and all aspects of life, there was a correct way to do things. And there was not a lot of socially acceptable wiggle room around that. And this is very generally speaking, there are many, many caveats to this, but I think that core to the American spirit is, is a pragmatism and a, a figuring out what works and a being open to adapt and to figure out what works. Um, what works best, and and not being burdened by by that one right way of doing things, um, and yeah, that was that was something I took away from the Peace Corps experience and from the the being an, an American abroad that I it continues to give me some hope for our country.
1: <laughs> okay, science fiction question: You wake up tomorrow morning. You know everything that you'll know tomorrow morning, except you're in your Peace Corps body day one of training. What do you think you'll do differently?
0: I, so the thing that I probably regret the most is that I didn't make any strong adult friendships in the Peace Corps with Mozambicans. Um, in my defense, it was a little bit more difficult. Um, in in Lishinga, It was either our students or, generally speaking, a much older faculty that was at a very different place in their lives than we were. So there weren't as many opportunities, um, but I would probably work harder to have sought that out through some of the the opportunities that were available to build some stronger adult relationships and adult friendships with Mozambicans that I could carry forward Um, I'm jealous of there's, there's many other volunteers who did have that. Um, and, and I would have liked to have had a bit more of that and, and more of the opportunity to, to have that, that, um, that exchange, uh, and to carry that forward post Peace Corps. Do you
1: have any Fofoca to share?
0: Nah, Kyla's next week. She's the Fofoka queen. She'll she'll okay. cover you nicely. Yeah, I got nothing good, I don't think. No. I was never we were we were the end of the world. We were the last to hear the Fofoka.
1: Did they call you guys the end of the world? Al that's 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 me also. They had also said that about our site, Forest and I's site.
0: Yeah, yeah, we were the we were the other end of the world, which I was so lucky. I, I mean, I would not trade Lichinga for anywhere else in Mozambique. It was a beautiful site. We had the best weather in Mozambique. We had easy access to the lake, which is still the most beautiful place in the world that I've ever been, um, and and that's something that I very much so hold onto um, is the Mozambican side of, of Lake Malawi. It was just a, a magical place of Lake Nyasa, Lake Lake.
1: All right. A billionaire reaches out to you. They've heard this conversation and they're going to give you a billion dollars to do whatever you want with for HIV and AIDS. So what are you going to do with this billion dollars?
0: I, um, I definitely used to, particularly like immediately after the Peace Corps, I would, think about this a lot and I would very much so start small and it is I think anyone who works in the HIV space either domestically or internationally knows that it is not just a question of medicine and and connecting that to people it is there are so many other factors intertwined in the li- the complex lives of people that lead to an epidemic and prevent us from ending an epidemic. And within, I would very much so be interested in, in going back within the Mozambican context because it holds a special place for me. Um, I would love to be able to build a much more Multifaceted um, project that's really you know bringing together education, health care, economic opportunity, all of the things that we know are necessary to actually build a strong, resilient community that can then address Uh, some of these issues and you know I'd love to recruit all of my friends from all of the the different sectors of it um uh, get Laura Malley for some city planning side of things John for education Kyla for health development um I I think that it 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 takes a village and which is trite but true saying and I think that the The development model internationally has never been complex or comprehensive enough to make true lasting change. I think that it focuses on one sector in in a void, which is never going to be successful when you don't account for all of the other aspects of a person's life that contribute or, or deter good health. Um, and so I think that it would be about finding the right people and the right Mozambican colleagues and connections to build a better, more comprehensive town, I guess, really, as a, as a model.
1: So almost like your own little charter city, like not necessarily buying a city, but just going in and really developing one city.
0: Yeah, yeah, I guess that's that's kind of true. And then, and then using that as as a model to um, maybe replicate or spread from there. But I have enough humility in having, you know, peripheral exposure to a lot of these these issues of development to know that it's never as easy as it sounds and um even all the money and all the goodwill in the world things fall apart but i would hope with enough money and enough goodwill and enough good people um that we might be able to to make something interesting
1: based off what you said earlier i i almost was predicting that you were going to spend it all on research and development because you'd mentioned that there's we're fairly close to that six-month shot or uh, whatever, uh, uh, whatever treatment you, you you said it was. But a billion dollars isn't enough, right? A billion's not like not going to make or break when that comes out.
0: And then this is something. So you know, I I praised Pepfar, and I do think it's a wonderful thing. But this was a very distinct lesson that we learned in Lashinga in being close friends with. Uh, Medicine Sans Frontier there, who were the, the government-affiliated HIV providers in uh, Lishinga and in much of Nyasa province. And they had been doing that for about a decade at that point. And they had developed a series of effective clinics and logistics and transportation networks for getting drugs and Probably to a lesser degree, testing and medical personnel out to different areas that needed it. Um, but then while John and I were there, they closed their mission in Lashinga. And they spent the entire first year that they were there um, trying to transition and trying to pass on all of that to the Mozambican Ministry of Health and, and direct Mozambican leadership. And um, they left, and it all fell apart. And we got to see a lot of that falling apart. And I think that that was very clear to me that the without having the solid multi-sectoral infrastructure, there's no chance of these top-down health, Uh, interventions from really being successful or lasting. I will say there's, you know, with PEPFAR, we, we, the biggest impact is that we've given a ton of antiretroviral drugs um, to sub-Saharan Africa. And there's, you're not going to have any development if people aren't alive and we have kept people alive, um, which is an incredible achievement uh, and something we should be proud of. But there has never been enough of a focus on building even just health infrastructure in the, the countries and the communities that we've partnered with much less the educational infrastructure, the good governance infrastructure, the economic infrastructures to actually maintain those health systems. um, Once they're in place and I think that the development world knows this and sees it. I don't know that there's enough money and willpower and political power um, to be making that transition and to make that refocusing. We'll see. I hope so. I hope that, and, and I've been a little more divorced from the space for, for a while now. Um, so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's been a lot more efforts. But then, you know, there's things happening like, again, call your congressmen and congresswomen um, to tell them stop being idiots and keep funding PEPFAR because it it is a great good thing um, that we have done and that we should continue to do as we figure out the better ways to do it.
1: Okay. Last part of the show, post Mozambique media recommendations. And if you're a little dry, cause you've been so involved in medicine, then, then you can be forgiven. Okay. Album. Ooh. Um,
0: again, I don't listen to nearly as much music in my life. So my husband is a classical musician. Um,
1: oh, cool. he is,
0: he is voice and piano. So I get a lot of music in my life that way now, which is lovely um, and makes me very happy. But because he's a classical musician, he actually really does not like to just listen to music for fun because music is work and like so much of everyday life for him that he's not a let's put music on in the car kind of person. So I get a lot less of it. But um, recently... Uh, I am in, I got, you know, the internet got me into jungle because of, I don't know if you'd seen, they, a lot of their music videos were making the rounds. There's some very cool choreographed, um, music videos out on Insta and the TikTok that the kids watch that I never got into. Um, but anyways, jungle, good, like y- British electro dance soul
1: music, I guess. Okay, can you say a little bit more though so Jungle is the name of the band. Do you know the name of the oh, album? Jungle's
0: the name of the band.
1: Any album by the band Jungle?
0: Oh. Their like first album was um was self-named. It was Jungle. But then also um recently I've been listening to Florence and the Machines newish album, which is I think Dance Fever. Um I I got into Florence in the Peace Corps, actually. That was when her first album was out, and it was one of my regular rotation albums. That was another thing. Like, I loved listening to full albums in the Peace Corps, and I don't get to do that very much anymore. Anywho. um, But yes, new Florence and the Machine, also quality.
1: Any standout songs to recommend?
0: Uh, King on her new album, I, I really enjoy Books for anyone who is an HIV nerd or interested in HIV space. The a recent um, nonfiction that I read was the "The Viral Underclass" by Stephen Thrasher. Um, very good evaluation of the inequities of the plague in America um, and how it particularly hits uh, young Black men um, and the structures in American society uh, legally, medically, that are targeting more specifically that group. Um, Yeah, it's a a good one.
1: Films to include TV show, things on screens.
0: Do go to a lot of movies still. That was, um, that's definitely something that, have held on to and that I didn't get enough of in Mozambique. So it's still magical in the U S. Uh, okay. Recent, Oh, recent winner. Um, All of us strangers. If you're wanting a beautiful, depressing um, art house uh, film, that was it's by the director is Andrew Hay, who is very big in queer cinema um did the tv series looking and a movie a few years ago weekend um, that were both very good this new one all of us strangers is excellent
1: do you have a prediction for the oscar winner 2023 in terms of best picture yes best picture yes
0: I think, I think probably oppenheimer is running away with it um which is it's fair and deserved i really i enjoyed it a lot i think it was a, a great movie I did I did Barbenheimer weekend and I do I do think actually the the back-to-back just, juxtaposition of the two of them was very informative. They they communicate well with each other. Um but yeah, I I enjoy the the slate this year. I think I've seen a good number of them at this point. Um there's a couple that I need to catch up on.
1: Any live performances to recommend? Music, uh theater, any anything live?
0: Um, I do see a lot of live classical, well, much more live classical music now than I used to. Um, We are blessed with a very nice um, Baltimore Symphony Orchestra here in town. Um, And I went to my first um, Dvorak Symphony from them recently, um, which I really loved and became my uh, my wake-up tune um I was never into classical music at all before meeting my husband and so I've been getting a a slow education and exposure to a lot more of it which has been nice
1: okay what's a good gateway listen for us listeners that haven't got into classical yet
0: most any town that has or any city that has any decently sized orchestra or choral performance group will often have a a Christmas time performance of Handel's Messiah. Um, and it's a very, like it's an extremely, I suppose, cliche performance now at this point, because it's it's so common, but it's gorgeous and it's it's a beautiful, <clears throat> beautiful piece that I think is a an accessible one that you will similar to like Shakespeare stuff. There's snippets of Shakespeare that you just know from pop culture. They're like, Oh, I I didn't realize that that was, you know, uh, from Hamlet. Um, You will recognize parts of the Messiah. And so I think that that's a good entry into classical music.
1: All right. That's a good answer. I like that. Podcast recommendations.
0: I'm a big political podcast junkie. Um, I listen to a lot of the the Pod Save America, Crooked Media realm of podcasts, um, and then oh yeah, I am I am such an NPR and PBS stan. I I'm basically an 80 year old man at this point, but every morning I listen to um, Up First from NPR and then the politics podcast on my way home from work. And then I watched the PBS news hour (laughs) and I'm very sad that, um, Judy is no longer the anchor, but I'm warming up to the current anchors.
1: Children's media. I have
0: gotten to see, um, a fair amount of bluey, because we were just on family vacation with the nieces and bluey is spectacular. Um, totally lives up to the hype. Um, really good stuff.
1: All right. Is there anything else you'd like to share? You are going to be in the running for one of the longest episodes.
0: Oh boy. <laughs> Maybe you can edit it
1: down. Um, no, no, it's, no- <laughs> good. it's all, it's all been good. Uh, no, I think
0: nothing else to share. Just that, um, I love you all. Um,
1: I definitely, while I have not been, you know, the best communicator, I have
0: not kept up with my Peace Corps family as much as I would like to. Um, it still 100% remains a foundational, you know, kind of lodestone in my life, um, and the people and experiences and the things that I learned good and bad about myself, um, have stuck with me. And so I thank everyone from most 15 for being part of
1: that journey and I
0: wish them well. And all
1: right, well, thank you, Chris. I appreciate your time, Christopher. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I was interested in, in your job because it is somewhat or so much related to our experience we had, but also different and not, uh, not talked about much in the U S
0: no, not as much as it should be. Um, but I, yeah, I'm happy to have the conversation. And again, James, thanks so much for putting this together. It's been really wonderful hearing from others and getting the updates and getting the reminiscence and and some of the the thoughts that other people have been able to put together about Mozambique with ten years' distance that resonate very much so with me and and kind of my retrospective view as well.